Thank you guys for leading us in corporate worship this morning. My heart has already been ministered to. My soul feels stirred and refreshed by those songs, by your voices, by those scriptures we've already read. And I'm excited to open God's word with you this morning. Would you bow with me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we have sung this morning of both your glory and your grace. And our desire this morning is that you, your grace, your glory, would be lifted up and exalted among us. We recognize this is not just a truth to understand, it is a reality to rejoice in. It calls for love, it calls for obedience. So move within us, Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts with your word, that you would direct us into your will, that we might live for your glory as we look to that glorious day as we await your return. Amen. Please open this morning once again to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Um, in recent years, it seems like we use a lot of uh, new types of power sources in this country. Um, we drive up to visit my wife's family sometimes in uh, Stanbury, Missouri, near Maryville, and there's this whole field of these massive wind turbines, and that's kind of cool. Um, even I know some people in this church have some solar panels hooked up at their house, but we still use a lot of coal in this country. Um, and the best way to transport a large amount of coal, despite all of our technological advancements, it's still the train. Trains still run in the United States. And a coal train usually has over 100 cars that are tied, that are hooked up end to end. And each one of those individual coal cars, if you can imagine this, weighs on average 143 tons. It's a lot. That's heavy. In order to move all of those cars from one place to another, what you'll often find is that there's an engine that's hooked up at the front, sometimes two or three or four or five. But if you sit there and watch that coal train go by, you'll notice there's not just locomotion at the front. There's also another engine or set of engines that are pushing from the back. That's how you create enough power, enough momentum to get that kind of a load moving. You need power in front, and you also need power behind. In the book of Titus, we've noticed over the last several weeks that good works are a dominant theme. Um, in Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul tells us that the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. He told us about his concern for false teachers in chapter 1, verse 16, that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, as for you, teach what accords with sound Doctrine, And then he goes to lay out what sort of good works are required from old men and young men, older women, younger women, and even for Titus himself. What Paul's teaching us is that healthy churches live out the truth of Scripture. We obey the commands of God. We seek to live a godly life. And in chapter 2, if you remember, this would have been two weeks ago now, um, Paul lays out all these different ethical commands, old women, young women, old men, young women, you can almost imagine all of these commands, the importance of self-control and loving husbands and, and children, the importance of uh, being dignified, uh, all of these different things. Imagine them like a bunch of coal cars stacked end to end. These are weighty matters. But Paul doesn't just tell us what to do. He gives us the reasons why. And these reasons why, these motives for godly living are like the, the locomotive that's tied up to the front of all of these coal cars. And in chapter 2, um, in verses 1 through 10, as we saw two weeks ago, Paul gives us a motive for these good works, a motive for godly conduct. He says it matters for the sake of our mission. Three times Paul points out his purpose. Verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent will be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And verse 10, so that in everything we might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the engine that pulls us forward. This is a motivation that's intended to, to compel us towards good works. That our conduct matters for the mission. But that's not the only motivation that Paul gives for godly conduct. If a concern for the advance of the gospel is like the engine that pulls us forward, when we get to verses 11 through 14, what we discover 
is that the grace of the gospel is the engine behind us that's pushing us, that's driving us onward and upward into a godly life that demonstrates the truth that we believe, that demonstrates the power of the gospel. In verses 11 through 14, we find perspective and motivation that you and I need if we're going to live a godly life. Look with me in verses 11 through 14. After giving all of these exhortations towards godly conduct, he grounds it in the grace of the gospel. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The subject and the theme of this single long sentence, this is one big long sentence that Paul gives us. The subject is grace. It's grace. Grace is the undeserved and unearned favor of God. That's what grace is. It's a gift that is freely given. It includes the forgiveness that we need for our sins. That's grace. But it also includes the power that enables us to do what we otherwise never could do. If it wasn't for the grace of God, you could never live a godly life. Neither could I. It is power. As one author puts it, and I love this, he writes, Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Continues, Grace is what every man needs, what none can earn, and what God alone can and does freely give. That's grace. Forgiveness, power, undeserved blessing, joy, help. And grace is the subject of this extensive passage, 11 through 14, this long sentence. And in unpacking this grace, what Paul does is give us a theological foundation for the ethical commands that precede this in verses 1 through 10. Back in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul says that Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And now we find this sound doctrine being defined, being explained. And what becomes clear is that grace is the foundation for a transformed life. If you desire to obey the commands found in, cha- in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, if you desire to live a self-controlled life like we talked about last week and, and to live a life that is godly, grace will be the transforming power for such a life. So as we examine grace this morning, I want to look at four ways that grace transforms the believer. Four ways that grace transforms us. And the first, most simple, but incredibly powerful truth is this. According to verse 11, grace saves us. Grace saves us. Look in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This little word for at the beginning of verse 11 is like a titanium link between grace and good works. Why are we to pursue godly conduct? Why are we to live in the way Paul describes in verses 1 through 10? It's not so that we may acquire God's grace. It's not so that we might secure Forgiveness. It's not so that God will love us. No, it's because we're already recipients of grace, because we're already recipients of forgiveness, because we're already recipients of his love. The godly life is not one of chasing God's favor. It's rather a response to that grace that he's already given us. Paul looks to the past and says, we're to live this way because the grace of God has appeared. It's a past tense reality, a historical reality. You say, well, how did God's grace appear? How was God's grace manifested or revealed or displayed? Well, very simply, in the coming of Jesus. Jesus is grace incarnate, grace personified. The apostle John wrote this in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Continues in verse 16. 
that from his fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared, what he has firmly fixed in his mind is the coming of Jesus. John MacArthur rightly points out that this grace is more than a divine characteristic. It's a divine person. It's a person. The grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation. That's what Jesus did when he came. That's how his grace is manifested. Yes, we see grace in his birth. As the Holy One of God draws near to men, we can also see grace in the life of Jesus. We see his grace at work as he heals people, as he delivers people from spiritual oppression and bondage. We see his grace as he feeds thousands of people. But we see the grace of God in Christ most powerfully, most explicitly in his work on the cross. It is the grace of the cross that brings us salvation. Paul told a young, another young minister, a man named Timothy, in 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That's what Jesus did. He gave himself as a ransom from all, for all. So in verse 11 where Paul says, The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. He's thinking of Jesus Christ, who gave himself to bring us this salvation. Jesus gave his life. He exchanged his righteousness for our filthy rags. He traded his status as the blessed and beloved son for our status as cursed under the law. He took our place under the wrath of God so that we might be elevated to share his place of fellowship with the Father. The grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, bringing forgiveness, bringing reconciliation with God, bringing eternal life, bringing freedom from sin. This grace has brought all of this to us. Jesus has brought all of this to us. He says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is really good news. Really good news, because whether you're male or female, whether you're an old man or a young man, like Paul's talking to an old woman or a young woman, whether you're a slave or free, whether you're a self-righteous Jew like Paul, or whether you're a gluttonous and lazy Cretan like many of his readers, his first readers, this offer of grace is universal. It extends to all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds with all kinds of problems with all kinds of needs. Paul's not claiming here that everyone is going to be saved. He's not saying that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation in the sense that each person individually in the world is going to experience it. But he's saying he's bringing it to all kinds, all sorts, all different shapes and sizes and colors. He's saying that the atonement of Jesus Christ, his work of grace on the cross, is sufficient for any and all who will come and believe. This saving grace of God provided to us in Christ, Paul says, is a powerful motivator for godliness. This is the engine behind the coal train that's pushing us onward and upward. You say, how does this understanding of God's grace in the past through Christ, how does this compel us and motivate us towards godliness? Well, in a couple ways, I think the appearing of this grace produces, number one, a response of fear. It might seem counterintuitive. But I love what John Newton wrote in his famous song, Amazing Grace. We've sung it so often, maybe we just say the words and don't think about them. But he writes, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How is it that the grace of God could teach us to fear? Well, doesn't the cross show us the reality of sin, the cost of sin? Doesn't the cross show us the magnitude of God's wrath against our rebellion? Doesn't the incarnation of Jesus show us our absolute need that we are utterly helpless? There's nothing we can do to resolve this problem. When we consider the revelation of the grace of God in Christ, it actually produces a response of fear, a proper fear of God that leads us to wisdom and godliness and self-control. 
But the appearing of grace also produces a response of gratitude. When we recognize all that God has done for us, when we realize that it doesn't depend on me to save myself, how else can we respond except in humble gratitude to say thank you? I think Paul has this in mind when he writes in Romans 12 that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God in light of his mercies, in view of all that he has done for us in salvation. This is our response of gratitude to God, to live a life of godliness, to live a life of self-control, to seek to be holy and pure. It's because we're so thankful that he has rescued us from our sin, that he's redeemed us, that he's given us life, that now our new desire is to honor him produces gratitude. It also produces, when we consider his grace, a response of love. We love him because he first loved us. How did he show that love? He didn't send you a Hallmark card. He gave his life on the cross. That's how he demonstrated his love. It's way better than anything anybody will get for Valentine's Day tomorrow. He gave himself. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. We love him because he first loved us. And this love motivates us. It pushes us like that train engine to lay aside sin and to strive towards godliness. When we remember the gracious appearing of Christ in the past, it motivates us to live for him in the presence, in the present. You know what won't energize joyful obedience? You know what actually lacks the power to sustain a godly life? Thinking that your salvation depends on you. Thinking that it depends on your good works. No, that won't do it. It's only in remembering that we are saved by Christ's work that we can rightly offer him our good works. We don't bring our good works to God as some sort of bargaining chip. Like, hey, I'll do this for you. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. No, this is simply our expression of worship and gratitude. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 14, where Paul says that the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake and was, and died and was raised. Paul says, I look to the past and recognize Jesus died for me. And that informs my understanding of the present, that I'm supposed to live for him. He says something similar in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul looks back to the cross to understand who he is in the present and how he is to live right now. Why should we pursue godly conduct? Why should we try to obey all of these ethical commands that we find in the book of Titus? Paul says, for this reason, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Grace saves us. Grace saves us. There's a second thing grace does. Secondly, grace changes us. Look in verse 12. We'll start in verse 11, actually. It's one sentence. You've got to get the flow here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The same grace that saved us now changes us. God's grace is at work not only in justification, making us right with God positionally, but also God's grace is at work in sanctification, making us more and more like God in a progressive sense. Verse 12 states this grace is training us, that it's doing something in us. And it puts it this way both positively and negatively. We'll look at the negative first. The grace, or rather, verse 12, it's training us first negatively to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And some of that negativity might surprise you, especially if, you're, if maybe you're not yet a Christian and you're sort of exploring you know, church this morning, you're curious what this is all about. Or maybe if you're a newer Christian, um, and, and haven't been able to, to have enough time studying God's word and sitting under good teaching to really have a good grasp of scripture, you might think, 
Well, grace is a positive thing, I thought. And this feels really negative, renouncing ungodliness and worldly lusts. But here, Paul is teaching what Kent Hughes calls an intolerant grace. I think that's a great statement. It's an intolerant grace that trains us, that teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts. This grace is intolerant in the sense that it is not compatible with just being at peace with our sin. It trains us to renounce anything that's opposed to God. We're supposed to renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness is the way of life that doesn't recognize God, that doesn't respond to God. It's a way of life that does not reflect God's character. When you and I act and behave in a manner that is opposite to the character of the one we worship, it's ungodly. Grace trains us to renounce that way of thinking, that way of living. Renounces us, it, it trains us, secondly, to renounce worldly passions. These are desires within us for things that are empty. Desires for things that are fleshly. Desires that reflect the value system of the world. Those are worldly desires. When we want what the world wants, and we want what the world wants in the way that the world wants it. Those are worldly passions, and grace trains us to renounce such things. It's to be forsaken. Some people have the idea that grace means that, well, the bar's been lowered. Isn't that grace? Doesn't grace mean that we just, we're cut a little bit of slack? It's like grading on a curve or something, isn't it? No, grace doesn't mean that the bar has been lowered or that the standard has been softened. The freedom that grace brings is a freedom from sin, not a freedom to sin. Jesus, who is grace incarnate, has saved us, and he now calls us to walk in newness of life. Not so that we can be accepted, but because we have been. So we lay aside our old life, and we seek to become conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the negative, laying things aside, renouncing them. But there's a positive aspect to what grace trains us to do. It trains us positively to live for Christ in submission to his will. What does this look like? Paul tells us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Self-control, as we looked at in depth last week, has to do with our personal character. There's an inward dimension to what grace trains us in how we control our own desires. It, it also trains us to be upright. Being upright has to do with our actions towards others. This is an outward dimension of what grace trains us in, that our behavior, our conduct, is recognized by the people around us as upright. And it trains us to be godly. This has to do with our relationship to the Lord. There's an upward dimension that our life honors and reflects Jesus Christ. Grace makes all of these changes not just possible, it makes them necessary. If we've received the grace of salvation, then that grace will be at work in us to make us more like Jesus. The grace that saves us also changes us. And as we receive his saving grace through faith, We are then called to submit to his sanctifying grace. So grace saves us. Grace changes us. But third, Paul tells us that grace also sustains us. Grace sustains us. Look in verse 13. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you back up just a minute to verse 12. We're supposed to live a certain way, Paul says, in the present age. But then immediately, Paul, having looked back historically to the appearing of of grace in Christ, considering the present age we live in, now he looks ahead to a future event, to the return of Christ. He has this panoramic view of grace, appearing in the past, training us in the present, But there's also a future reality that is coming. The world as we know it, Paul reminds us, is a temporary arrangement. It won't always be like this. There won't always be sin and suffering and death and hardship and wickedness in the world around us. And you know what? We won't always be like this either. The sin that dwells within us, our own fleshly desires, the temptations that we struggle with, the sickness and the suffering that we experience, one day all that is coming to an end. 
And if the first coming of Jesus can be summed up as grace in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, the second coming of Jesus is summed up as glory. We're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This coming glory is incredibly good news. It's a grace. It's a, it's a grace that sustains us by giving us hope. We have hope that we will one day see Christ and we will be with him forever. We have hope that one day our warfare will be over, that we will no longer struggle against the enemy or struggle against our own sin. We have hope that one day our bodies will be made perfect. We will be resurrected. We'll be glorified. We have hope that we will enter an eternal rest and receive an eternal reward promised to us by Jesus. We have hope that evil will be judged and destroyed and that every tear will be wiped away. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5.2 that through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's what sustains us. That's an engine hooked up behind this whole train of coal that's moving forward. There's the grace of God that has appeared in our salvation, the grace of God that is at work in us, training us, and there's this hope in future grace that is pushing us onward and upward. You know, there's several attitudes that you could probably have towards the future. When some people consider the future, they're marked by fear. What's going to happen? How bad is it going to hurt? Some are marked by anxiety and uncertainty. I, I, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I'm concerned about some of the things the future may hold. Some people think about the future. They don't really feel much of anything. There's just apathy, living for the moment. Get what you can while the getting's good and don't worry about that stuff. But listen, grace sustains us. When we look to the future, the appearing of Jesus Christ, it fills us with hope. Hope as we consider the future. Hope as we look to the heavens and await the return, specifically, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a magnificent title that Paul uses here. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's one of the most clear statements in Scripture of Christ's divinity. That he's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. He's more than just a prophet. Far better, far more glorious than even an angel. He is our great God. And the Father's glory, just like his grace, is manifested in Christ. And this glory, Paul says, will soon appear. Not in humility like his first coming. Not quietly in a stable. It's going to come with power and splendor. Every eye will see. Everyone will know. And every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now notice this. I want you to see how Paul connects this hope of glory to the ethical concerns of this chapter. Remember, this is all one sentence. We're sort of zooming in on different parts of it here to better understand it. But I don't want you to lose sight of the whole picture. That godly living, the godly living Paul's calling us towards. This self-controlled life, this godly life that renounces worldly lusts and all these other things. It's inseparably connected to their hope in Christ's return. It empowers that. This is the foundation for living the way that Christ calls us to live. If Jesus is coming back, think about it this way. If Jesus is coming back in glory, then renouncing the desires for the world makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If Jesus is coming back in glory to judge the wicked and reward his saints... Well, then self-denial is worth it, isn't it? It makes sense. If Jesus is coming back in glory, then us getting ready to meet him and being prepared for that, that becomes a priority, doesn't it? You see how an understanding of Christ's future return, it, it has to shape how we live. I won't embarrass them and say their names, but we have a, a couple present with us this morning who just got back from their Honeymoon, they just got married. We had our first wedding here in the church building. Those of you who are married, think back to your wedding day. Or maybe if you're not married yet, think about what you would do on your wedding day. 
on her wedding day, a bride prepares herself, doesn't she? Everything she does has a purpose. She probably brushes her teeth a little bit more carefully on her wedding day. There's going to be pictures, you know. Everything she does has a purpose. Everything she does is reflecting her anticipation for this beautiful moment of coming together with her husband. She's preparing to be united with her groom. And we as the church, as the collective bride of Christ, are to have this same anticipation to meet our Savior. And it's an anticipation that causes us to, re- to prepare. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's amazing. That fills us with hope. There is glory coming, not just glory for Christ, but we will too, we also will be made glorious. And then John says this right after that. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John, just like Paul, connects this hope, this anticipation for Christ's return with the priority of purifying ourselves. It's a purifying hope, a hope that sustains our efforts to renounce ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. As we anticipate Christ's return in the future, it motivates us to live for him In the present, the salvation that Christ began when he first appeared will be completed at his second coming. So we don't quit, we don't give up, we don't lose heart, we are confident in this future grace and it sustains us. You know, some of you this morning may be discouraged. You're discouraged um, in your Christian life, you're discouraged when you look out at what's going on in the world, perhaps. Maybe you feel fearful, maybe you feel frustrated. Listen, hope is found in looking to Christ. It's found in looking to Jesus and anticipating his return. That's the solution for your fear, for your frustration, for your anger, for your emptiness. It's looking to Christ. Isn't the return of Jesus something we ought to eagerly await? If we believe he's coming, shouldn't that change how we feel, and how we live. There's great motivation to be found in considering the hope of glory. Is that what you're hoping in? Is that what you're anticipating? Does that sustain you on a daily basis? It can, and it should. Grace sustains us. So grace saves us, it changes us, it sustains us, and then finally, grace also directs us. Grace directs us. Look in verse 14. In making reference to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Paul says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace directs us. It guides us. It points us in a new direction. We need to understand there is definitely power in the grace of God and that it saves us and it changes us. But there's also purpose in his grace. Think about that. There is purpose in his grace. Jesus died for a reason. He died for a reason. There's a number of things Jesus accomplished at the cross. Jesus died to express the love of the Father for us. That's definitely true. Jesus died on the cross in order to destroy sin and death. Jesus died on the cross in order to secure and purchase forgiveness for his people. But verse 14 shows us that Christ's redemptive purpose includes this, that he was intending to redeem and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. Jesus died for that. He died for that. There's an echo here of an Old Testament passage when it says, that he was redeeming and purifying for himself a people. It reminds us of how God once rescued the nation Israel from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out to Mount Sinai in order to form a covenant with them. A number of months ago, we were working through the book of Exodus, and we saw in Exodus 19, verse 4, that God said, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
That's grace, isn't it? It's salvation. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God had a purpose in bringing Israel out of Egypt, that they would be his people, a holy people, and they would be in this covenant relationship with him. Listen, that same purpose is at work in Christ's death on the cross. He's bringing us out of our slavery to sin and death. When God saves us as a people, he saves us for himself. Jesus brings us into relationship with himself. Jesus didn't die for you, Christian, so that you could sort of individually go on your merry little way with this new freedom from sin and a promise of heaven one day. No, he did it to form a people to bring us together as the church, to purify us for himself. Not only did Jesus do something for us when he saved us, he desired to do something in us to give us new passions, new desires. Instead of worldly lusts, worldly passions, he desires to give us a zeal for good works, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's not a word we use very often, zealous. If we do, it's usually kind of in a negative connotation. Like, wow, that guy's a little overzealous, you know. He gets out there, you know, February 2nd, and he's already mowing his yard. It's like, guy, just wait a little bit. The grass doesn't need it just yet. You know, we use the word zealous that way. But this is a very biblically valuable word. Zealous, it's a strong passion, a fervent desire. There's an idea of warmth and heat that's going on here. It's interesting, historically, there was a group called the Zealots in the New Testament. It was a political group. They were activists. They were revolutionaries. They were sworn by an oath to do anything in their power to overthrow Rome and win freedom for the nation Israel. All sorts of plots, intrigue, risking life and limb, willing to kill or be killed in order to accomplish their objective. They were zealots. They were known for their passion, for their patriotism for the the hot and burning longing they had to accomplish their objective. We are to be zealots, not for a political cause, but for good works. Zealous is a biblical character quality that was exemplified by Jesus. Jesus, in fulfillment of the Psalms, entered into the temple, and he disrupted things, turned over some tables, chased everybody out, And it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. The passion of Jesus was for the glory of his Father. The passion of Jesus was for the purity of worship and prayer. The passion of Jesus was that sinful people would have access to a holy God through the gracious means God had provided. Zeal for his house, the Father's house, had consumed him. It drove him. This is a Christ-like character quality. There ought to be zeal in us as well. Romans 12, 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be slothful in zeal. There's way too much complacency and apathy and casualness in our approach to the Christian life too often. We're supposed to be marked by zeal. Zeal specifically for good works. Zealous for good works works. As we mentioned earlier, the false teachers in chapter 1 verse 16 were unfit for any good work. They professed to know God, but denied him by their works. In contrast, we are to be zealous for good works and to carry them out as we're compelled by the grace of God. We're supposed to be, according to chapter 3 verse 8, careful to devote ourselves to good works. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Good works are to be a priority for us, something that that calls for passionate desire and prolonged effort. You might say, okay, so what are the good works we're called to? How do we define good works? Because you may think you're doing good works, and I may think I'm doing good works, but who's really doing good works? Well, we don't define good works. God does. We look to his word, and his word calls us to obedience to Christ, And it lays out for us clear desires for how we ought to live. Consider the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. You'll find a whole bunch of list of things that would qualify as good works. 
And they have Jesus' signature on them. Look at the list of commands in Romans chapter 12, where Paul gives instructions to the church for the good works that should mark those who belong to Christ. Look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. In contrast to the works of the flesh, the Spirit produces good fruit in us. Look at the code of conduct in Titus chapter 2 for the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women. We find it in Scripture. That's my point. Look to God's Word and find there the clear definition for the good works that we are called to. Paul's point here is that if we continue in sin and we neglect good works, if we're not passionately pursuing these good works, we are living in opposition to Christ's purpose in dying for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Are you in line with that or are you not? Are you submitted to Christ's purpose for you as his chosen, as his beloved, as the recipient of his grace? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We ought to be those like Isaiah, the prophet, who when he beheld the holiness of God and then experienced the gracious purification of God, Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, my eyes have seen the king. He's seeing the holiness of God. And then God sends this angel to take a coal from the furnace and touch his lips. He purified those sinful lips. And then you know what Isaiah said? Here am I, send me. Use me, Lord, for your purposes. The Apostle Paul was persecuting Christians. He wasn't an apostle yet, but he's persecuting Christians. He gets knocked off his horse. He sees a vision of the glorious Christ, and he says, What shall I do, Lord? Give me your marching orders. Whether it's Isaiah in the Old Testament, Paul in the New Testament, we see an example there of what it looks like to respond to the grace of Jesus Christ. And it needs to be marked by zeal. Perhaps there's a lack of godly zeal in your life. Maybe you're a little bit apathetic this morning. Maybe you're the kind of person who looks for low-hanging fruit. You know, the good works that are easy to do, the good works that don't cost me too much, the good works that are convenient, yeah, I'll do those. I've got plenty of those to show. But maybe you avoid the hard ones, the ones that cost a little bit more. Rather than renouncing ungodliness, perhaps... You just try to generally avoid the most conspicuous forms of ungodliness. You know, the ones that aren't culturally acceptable. You know, the ones that would make you look bad in front of other people. You're sort of content to go with the flow, though. There's really no urgent, zealous renouncing of ungodliness in your life. Does the grace of God inspire obedience for you? Does it produce this kind of zeal? If not, that's concerning. If there's no zeal for good works in your life, you may be a Christian who's sort of riding the brakes and resisting God's work of grace in you. You don't want to do that. You don't want to quench the Holy Spirit and grieve him by resisting his work of grace in you that's meant to produce a zeal for good works. But it could actually be a worse situation. If there's no zeal for good works in you, if there's not a renouncing of ungodliness and a passion to serve the Lord... It's quite possible that you've never been hooked up and connected to those twin engines of grace in the first place. It's quite possible that you're trying to move all these heavy coal cars out of the train yard, but they're not hooked up. You need Christ. It's possible you've never received his grace in the first place, that you've never been saved. You've not been truly born again. Listen, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and received the transforming grace of the gospel, then scripture says you have not been redeemed from lawlessness. You're still a slave to sin. You've not yet been purified by the blood of Jesus. You're still defiled. You're unclean. You do not belong to the people of God, these people that God is calling out. You're still an outsider. But listen, his grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
So if that describes you today, if you're an outsider, if you're defiled in your sin, if you've not yet been redeemed, if there's no empowering, transforming grace at work in your life, then come to Jesus today and receive the forgiveness, the life, the hope that only he can give. If you'll repent of your sin and believe in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he will change you. He will save you, and you will start to experience a new power, a new desire to live a godly life. Don't even try to follow Jesus without knowing Jesus. Don't even try to be like Jesus without the help of Jesus. It's impossible. You must be born again. You must be saved. You must receive the grace of God before any of this can become possible. If I could speak to some of the Christians in the room, I think sometimes we are zealous, but sometimes we're zealous for the wrong reasons. We're zealous because of our pride. I'm going to prove to him that I'm better than he thinks I am. Sometimes we're zealous because of our guilt. I know I've fallen short. I know that I've made mistakes. I know my sin, but maybe I can make it up to God. Sometimes we're zealous because of our fear. We're afraid that if we don't do certain good things, that God is going to smash us with a hammer, that maybe we'll lose our salvation. But all of those are wrong reasons to become zealous for good works. It ought to be the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It ought to be the grace of the gospel that motivates and compels our zeal. Listen, there's no better motivator than grace. Guilt can only take you so far. Law can only propel you for so long. Simple, naked fear can't sustain change in obedience for a lifetime. Grace exceeds them all. When we remember Christ's coming, it motivates us to live for him. When we anticipate Christ's return, it motivates us to live for him. When we understand Christ's redemptive purpose, who we are supposed to be, it motivates us to live for him. So Christian, if you are zealous, I hope that it's the grace of God that's compelling and fueling that zeal. Christian, sometimes we're zealous, but we're zealous for the wrong things. We're not zealous for good works as defined by Scripture. We're zealous for other things, other worldly passions. We're zealous for the success and health of our family. We're zealous for the advance of our own personal career. We're zealous for our political cause of choice. We're zealous for pursuing and enjoying a romantic relationship. Zeal can be misplaced. Think about over the last two weeks, what is it that's occupied the most bandwidth in your mind and in your heart? What is it that you've contemplated the most? What is it that you've talked about the most with other people? It's going to tell you what you care most about. Listen, there is no shortage of others who want to hijack and mobilize your zeal. And as you're thinking about that, what's occupied my mind? What has been the constant theme of my speech? What is it that I have feasted on in terms of my reading and my watching and my meditating? Just be specific. If anything like masks or vaccines or some some of that other stuff, if that's part of the equation... And I think your zeal may be misplaced. There are many others who want to hijack and mobilize your zeal. But our zeal belongs to Christ. And our zeal needs to be for his purposes, his truth, his gospel, his glory. That needs to be the driving factor for us. Yeah, we're going to have opinions and even engage in discussions about all sorts of things. But the thing that rules our hearts, the things that captures our emotion and our imagination, the thing that we're willing to spill our blood for, is the glory of Jesus Christ, and it's the good works that he has called us to. Our zeal must not reflect a concern for our immediate situation, but rather show that we're looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our zeal must be to advance God's purposes, not our own, to seek God's glory, not to seek our own comfort, to advance God's truth, not our own opinions or convictions. If the grace of God doesn't have its proper place in your life, in your heart, and your zeal is misplaced, 
then you need to repent of giving the car keys to the wrong driver. You need to be renewed in your understanding of God's grace. Be renewed in your reliance on that grace. Be renewed in your submission to God's grace and his purposes for you so that those purposes become a reality. So that your zeal is for the good works that God has appointed to you. Grace transforms us. It's going to make us look very different from the world. It's going to make us look very different than we were yesterday. Grace saves us. It changes us, it sustains us, and it directs us into God's purposes for our life. The knowledge of the truth accords with godliness, Paul writes. Hey, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine, Paul writes. And it's a godly life that Christ is calling us to. But Paul doesn't just tell us what we are to do, he tells us why. There's this There's this compulsion that that pulls us forward. It's for the sake of the advance of the gospel so that the the doctrine of God may be adorned. There's this missional concern on the front that pulls us forward, but there's also this foundation of the grace of God in the gospel that compels us, that pushes us, that drives us along. That's the power that we need. Let's pray that God would continue to conform us and compel us by his grace. Father, we thank you for just the absolute clarity of your word that tells us exactly who you are, exactly what you're doing, and exactly what your will is for us. Lord, what's not written on the pages of Scripture is the specific ways in which some of us may need to repent and change. And Lord, I could stand up here and give example after example of the kinds of ways we need to apply this in our lives. But Lord, I'm asking that this morning your Holy Spirit would do that specifically in the heart of each person who's present. That you'd show us specifically where we might be disconnected from your grace. Where we might be relying on the wrong thing, motivated by the wrong thing, remembering the wrong thing, anticipating the wrong thing, depending on the wrong thing. I pray that we would have a renewal this morning in our church in terms of laying hold of grace through faith, the grace that comes through Christ. Lord, for those who may not know you, I pray that they would understand this morning that what they need today is your grace, and that grace is available at the cross for all who would repent and believe. So Lord, save sinners, sanctify your saints, produce in us a zeal for good works, the good works that you have called us to. May we be marked by this grace as we seek to live godly lives for the glory of Christ. Amen.